Hello and welcome to the latest episode of a Med Talk podcast. It's a little bit of a special one this week uh, where we discuss the latest Topol review for the NHS. Check it out. First thing to say is that we have a couple of new voices joining us on the podcast this week. We'll get to the second voice later on, but uh, first of all, I'd like to welcome to the podcast Mr. Ian Bolland. Hi, Dave. Hi. <laughs> so, thanks for the boxer intro. Sorry, I'm trying to be more enthusiastic in these podcasts, but um, Ian, you joined us recently at Rapid Life Sciences as our web content editor. How are you finding the role? Busy, but just how I like it. Good, that's good, I'm glad to hear it because it's always going to be busy because there's always news to report in life sciences and that's why we have this brilliant podcast. So, um, you're kicking us off this week, Ian, straight in at the deep end, what have you been doing? That's because I went to uh, London and to the Royal Society of Medicine to uh, another launch of the TOEFL review by Dr Eric Topol. Uh, the report was commissioned by the NHS when Jeremy Hunt was health secretary. Eric Topol, nothing to do with Fiddler on the Roof. Um... Probably, I don't know. Is it Topol or Topol? I would say Topol. I the thing is, I heard it pronounced three different ways. Topol um, is the guy from Fiddler on the Roof, and it's spelt the same way. Right. So I'm going with Topol. Topol. I'll yeah. go with Topol. <laughs> so, yeah. You go with Topol. I'll sort of like dive between the two, and I'll probably put my own spin on it. You're so confusing. Why? Because you can't just pick, you have to just pick one. No, I'm sitting on the fence. Okay, um, I've cut you off. Go ahead, Ian. Well, sorry, I've lost first of all, this, this report follows on from the the Wachter review, by it any does. chance? It does. We've talked about Bob, Wa- Bob Wachter on this podcast in the past, but yes. Reese just reminds us who he is. Um, <laughs> he um, commissioned, he was the head of a, the digital report for the NHS, commissioned in 2014, was it? Uh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. It, was the, it was the year that we launched Digital Health Age. Yeah, so. and, and he came in from the US and made a whole host of recommendations for how the NHS can digitise many of its processes to uh, reduce uh, time constraints and you know stuff like that. And he, he's quite well regarded. Yeah, quite prolific in the, on the UK digital health scene. He wrote a book called The Digital Doctor, which... Is on my s- desk. You still have a copy on your desk. I think... Generally, his recommendations were quite well received. Mm-hmm. He brought a lot of lessons learned from the American implementation model um, over to the British shores, and it was quite quite well received. Yeah. Um, so, this is, so this is the next phase of that, almost. What were some of the main findings you uh, you took from this, Ian? Well, a lot of a lot of the focus seems to be on improving the education of the workforce. Um, mm. The um, the health secretary Matt Hancock mentioned in his short address during the lectures that he wants to make more of the existing technologies there. Um, uh, I actually found it interesting between both the press briefing and uh, Matt Hancock's speech that Matt Hancock came out as an angle of Dr. Tovel has pointed out we are 10 years behind in certain cases, mm-hmm. whereas Dr. Tovel himself was very keen to talk up uh, the talent and the digital health pool and and in genomics that we have in this country. So, Hancock was um, discussing making use of existing technologies that are sort of readily deployable, instead of looking ahead, say, five, ten years, 
to see what we can do then. Yeah, he, he was very seized the moment, I think, was right. pretty much the theme of his speech. He made an interesting comparison with the supermarket. Um, I, I did see that. Yeah. Um, there's been a little bit of backlash on Twitter about that. He, well, yeah. <laughs> Why? What was the comment? He, he compared, um, he compared the, the data aspect of it uh, with Tesco. Mm-hmm. And that Tesco know how to target you in terms of loyalty cards and all this kind of thing. They they know certain things that are tailored to you. So he, he um he, he yeah he said Tesco has um much better control over its data compared to NHS. Um and then I've seen a few tweets from clinicians saying that's ridiculous. You know every doctor who's engaged with a patient has a has an outline of their medical record and history and the problems that they have. So I think it was just a bit of a sting to you know the doctors working within the NHS, but it's a, it's a headline grabber. It's a it? headline grabber, um, and it, it it seems well intentioned enough. Um, yeah, I mean there wasn't a, a sizable reaction in the room to suggest that it it went down badly. Yeah. Okay. But, um, and, and we all we, we do know that data infrastructure within the NHS is a bit of a sticking issue, especially when you consider where sort of patient records are sort of siloed within certain trusts and they can't be shared across um, you know, different institutions across the UK. Mm. So there's definitely points to be made. So what followed on from the uh, that introduction? Um, Dr Topol himself gave a presentation of how technologies can be used. Mm-hmm. Um, there was actually a rather interesting part of his presentation where he took what he described as a, uh, a medical selfie with his smartphone um, to the point where... and. Um, correct me, and someone can write and correct me if I'm wrong in this, but I'm pretty sure that he self-diagnosed himself with kidney stones. Yeah, I did see that. Um, a little image on 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 Twitter um, popped up of him of him doing that. What was he using? Just his smartphone. It would, but he had several applications on there that I I can't remember. Was it was there like a, a smart add-on to the phone by any chance? Because it was in explicit detail. What yeah, it, the, the um, image. Yeah, really? yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems to be add-ons, but I, I couldn't tell for sure because um, I'm not as up to speed on the technology as someone who's written a 104-page report on it. Right. Well, yeah, it's fair enough. I think. <laughs> Can I derail this episode quickly with a study that I got sent the other day? Yeah, yeah. Um, about kidney stones, I just found really interesting. Completely unrelated to this, a doctor cured his kidney stone. No, sorry, I've got that wrong. Okay. I think a doctor cured a patient's kidney stones or claims he cured a patient's kidney stones by sending him on a roller coaster loads of times but not just any roller coaster it had to be one of those really old fashioned rickety ones like the Big Dipper okay. uh, Blackpool um, one of the old wooden style ones and um, apparently just the just the sort of jittery vibration of the thing um, just wiggled those kidney stones <laughs> wiggled them right out wiggled them right out I mean, well, that just sounds like the most painful cure for anything. Yeah. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? I so, mean, did he have to keep on going on it? Yeah, he had right. to go on it several times. Um, was it not just a case of the rest of the body was in pain so much that they just the kidney stone pain just didn't feel as great? Just didn't feel that bad. Yeah. No, apparently, apparently it shook them out um, of him. Surely, that I mean, there are ways to treat kidney stones without sending you to like Alton Towers. Surely. Yeah, but it's fun, isn't it, Alton Towers? Yeah, Alton Towers is good. Good day out. Yeah. Never been. Never been. Never been. Well, maybe we can get some um, sponsorship on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> not get, really. Get some free tickets. I'm not sure that this is their target <laughs> audience, but you never know. Never know. Um, anyway, top all. Yeah. 
Um, there were a couple of interesting aspects when I was reading the report. I was specifically looking because of our angle, mm-hmm. the kind of things that uh, industry could do, right. um, and in terms of improving the relationship with the NHS and, and developing technology side by side. There were a couple of um, recommendations from the organised and development working group within the report. Oh, right. That they they say that the, the NHS should support collaborations between the NHS and industry aimed at improving the skills and the talent of healthcare staff. And again very much the theme of the report itself where they want to improve uh, the skills of the workforce mm-hmm. and the NHS should work with stakeholders across sectors to review the regulation and compliance requirements for new digital healthcare technologies which leads me to think okay we want you to work with industry but we don't think we have the answer itself so that's something I actually asked uh, Dr Topol about uh, in the press briefing he, he seemed very uh, very encouraged by the kind of relationships that we that the NHS and industry do have uh, with each other. Uh, he says he thinks that the public-private partnership is a great model and that it's something that's been well achieved um, and the relationship as, as well as relationships with the life science industry and with technology companies. Right. Um, well, one of the sticking points that the medtech industry has had in the past with the NHS was actually finding sort of the correct person to, to approach to actually sort of um, get their devices within the organisation to try and um, you know, improve patient outcomes or, or monitoring or adherence or, you know, what, whatever what the device uh, is suited for. I mean, I can't speak for Dr. Topol here at all, but from my uh, standing from when I was sat there, I th- it, a lot of his comparisons were with the United States because that is, that's where he's from. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the sector he knows best. But um, a lot of what he said was he, he was speaking very highly and he, and he wished that a lot of uh, the relationships that the UK has in terms of the NHS and industry was a bit more like that in the United States. Oh, right. But, I mean, I, I could be wrong on that. I misread the situation. It's <laughs> <laughs> a social faux pas. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's my thing, misreading the situation. <laughs> cool. Well, you actually got a chance to speak with him, didn't you? I did. I managed to get a couple of minutes uh, with him um, after his presentations and panel sessions. Um, and we have a quick... Se- well... First one's quite quick. Um, soundbite from Topol, Topol, um, on the aspect of the digitised industry and the NHS. I'd just like to apologise for the um, the sound quality. There's a bit of a background speaking in it, but this is Dr. Topol from the uh, review himself. That's where they have access to a lot of the technologies, and that's, they have an edge in general. So, for example, uh, the largest tech companies have uh, large teams of AI expertise to develop and help validate algorithms that would be tested in, in clinical populations. So it can expedite things to work with industry. But at the same time, you have to set up the, the right uh, arrangements. So infrastructure? It's not just infrastructure. It's like if we develop and validate an algorithm, it's, uh, uh, if we discover things, if we have intellectual property, do we you know, share it? So it's not it's not a sense of exploitation. Uh, and of course, the data security issues and privacy that have to be really thought through carefully. That the data are truly not uh, uh, de. Uh, re-identified or identifiable. So there's lots of issues but to grapple with, but at the end of the day, 
that without that collaboration, it's much slower. It's yeah. home baking everything. It's more homegrown, and it takes years more than to just say, "Here's a platform. We can work with this, adapt it to our needs, that kind of thing." Yeah, so that's awesome to hear his um, take on that, and um, really good to, you know, know that he has support for collaboration between um, the sector and the NHS. So let's hear what else he had to say. My favorite model is data ownership by the person, so that that person has that charge and can share ad lib with pieces of the data. You know, it might be the genomic data or the sensor data or the medical record data, but they make the call. And I think eventually we're going to get to that point, and eventually it'll be a civil right to own your health and medical data, all of it. And that we have the infrastructure to be able to share that as needed. Because right today, a lot of that data is homeless. You know, sensor data doesn't get deposited in your medical record for the NHS, for example. So that would be the ideal uh, solution to this. And then people would be comfortable. And if they say, I'll donate it for this study, then they know that what they're getting into. Yeah, I think the aspect of data ownership within the NHS is quite interesting, especially considering the... Um, you know, the Google DeepMind um, scandal that occurred, was it 2017 or 2018? I feel like it was the back end of 2017. Um, do you remember this, Dave? I'm not sure if you'll be aware of this one, Ian. No, the only so, data for each time I'm aware was WannaCry, but... WannaCry, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember. You remember? Mm-hmm. Well, um, so that was a partnership between Google DeepMind, which is Google's artificial intelligence um, subsidiary, Mm -hmm. and a trust in London, I don't want to say which one, um, but essentially the data used to develop an app called Streams, which I think was for acute kidney injury detection. can't remember that. Um, yeah, the, the, the data used to develop that app was non-consensual, uh, essentially, and whilst it should have just been for a certain subset of patients, it ended up being for a whole range of patients with HIV and other ailments, and it was something like 700,000, I think, patients um, who ended up having the, the, the data not going essentially uh, give, given to Google. Mm. Um, so obviously, I, I mean, I believe the NHS is well aware that this needs to be a, you know, a particular strength of it when it's, when it's going to go forward, and you know, particularly with the uh, NHS app coming out, where people will have access to their medical records, I think they will be well aware that people need to have complete control over their, over their medical uh, records and, and, and data. In the room there was certainly a case of uh, they want the public to have confidence. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of mention within the report of that they want uh, the patients to feel like they can trust their trusts yeah. uh, with, with their data. Trust is, is a big part of it and um, there's been a lot of um, reviews in the last few years at a government level into how they achieve that trust and I think um, communication with patients seems to be key so it's about explaining to patients in a really clear non-NHS kind of way you know avoiding talk about pathways and all of the kind of NHS lingo that yeah digital exemplars different trusts yeah test beds yeah. People, people don't <laughs> connect you know real Patients don't connect with that language. We use that language, but that's and, and we still 
Dortmund have done half of it. We, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I think there's a, a lot to be said for simplifying the semantics yeah. around um, this. And that's not to sound patronising at all, but um, I think when you're talking about something um, like data, you need to be really black and white as to... Yeah, this is what you own. This is where it's going to be used. We won't sell data to third parties, just, you know, bl- blanket statements, basically. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, you know, the NHS is a huge organisation, um, so it's no surprise that, you know, things are sometimes a little bit jargony or a little bit uh, jumbled up when they uh, promote things. But is it okay for just to touch on the coverage that this has had? I mean, I think I said to you after I came, just a few weeks after I came back from, from London, when I, I picked up a the local paper and I was surprised at the lack of coverage that it received given them, given how wide ranging it is. Yeah, I, I remember on the first day that the review was um, announced there wasn't an abundance of coverage but since then um, there's been a fair bit, not as much as expected um, but still quite, you know, more more, more than uh, that first sort of uh, barrage of uh, uh, news announcements. Barrage. Barrage. Good word. Nigel Barrage. <laughs> did you have to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can cut that out. Yeah, I'm leave it in. Yeah, just leave my despair in there. <laughs> I'm just going to put Nigel Barrage just randomly placed throughout the podcast. <laughs> it's not going to be a video jingle. <laughs> <laughs> we should explain to people why it's been such a long time between the last podcast and this one. It's been a very long time. Can you remember how long it's been? Yeah, I'm looking at the last one now. The oh last God. one was in... Oh, excuse me. I'm not sure I do have... Oh, no. Here we go. 11th of July, oh, 2018. Um, but it was a good podcast. <laughs> I think we're going to call this one Another Lost Podcast. Basically, what happened is we have recorded several podcasts between um, July 2018. Well, I say several. We've recorded about three podcasts yeah. between July 2018 and this one. And due to various different technical problems, we lost them all before they got into your ears. Uh, yeah, that's essentially what happened. So, sorry about that. But um, we are back now, and we intend to be our regular... Keep it more regular. ...podcasting selves. Yeah. Um, thank you to all the people that have written nice comments about this podcast on SoundCloud and on iTunes. Um, please keep the support coming because we really, really value that. Yeah, and whilst we're on the topic of promotions, where can people subscribe to the podcast too? People can subscribe via iTunes. Just search MedTalk Podcast. That's M-E-D-T-A-L-K Podcast or via SoundCloud. Um, to be honest, just stick MedTalk Podcast in Google. I'm pretty sure we're the first thing that comes up. Yeah, and you can also access it through uh, our websites as well. So all our various publications, mm-hmm. uh, MedTech Innovation News, Medical Plastics News, European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer and Digital Health Age. Absolutely. So please keep on listening. At this point in the podcast, I'd like to welcome Magda Bragova, who is our wonderful conference producer for MedTech Innovation Expo. Um, MedTech Innovation Expo, as you know, is coming up 15th to the 16th of May at the NEC in Birmingham. We hope to see you all there. So Magda, welcome along. First time on the podcast. Thanks very much, Dave. You are welcome. Um, tell us what we can look forward to at this year's expo. So for the first time this year, we will have three stages. Uh, first 
of the stages is the MedTech Innovation Conference in association with MediLink. And some of the speakers will include Dr. Sam Roberts from NHS England, um, Karen Livingston, who's also from NHS England. Uh, we will have Dr. Kath McKeith from Innovate UK and other speakers will include Dr. James Carpenter from Shaw Pulse Medical and John Swinburne from B13 Technologies. So that's the main stage. We've got some really big names there um, and we're looking forward to hearing what they've got to say. Do you know what kind of things um, they're going to be covering? Uh, so some of them will be covering um, innovation exchange, um, supporting innovation in the NHS, uh, growing and scaling the best UK medtech businesses. Um, others will look at um, why we need to get serious about investing in digital health uh, and generally about designing and manufacturing the medtech devices. Awesome. And you mentioned there was two other stages this year, I guess because we're moving up to the NEC from the RICO in Coventry. Um, we have lots more room for lots more content. What are the other two stages? So the other two stages are health tech stage and introducing stage. Uh, health tech stage this year will include speakers uh, also from NHS, from Alder Hay. Um, one of them is Dr. Ian Hennessy. He's the guy, Reese. you've been to see him a few times at various things. He's the guy who is kind of like the world's most innovative surgeon. Yeah, he's um, head of the innovation department at Alder here. Uh -huh. um, he's a paediatrician, yeah, but he's head of the um, sort of where we're trying to advance a lot of the technology and uh, sort of devices they use in, in, in surgery. And he's a big advocate of augmented reality and uh, using those types of technologies within surgery. What's his paper title? Alder Hay, The Living Hospital. The Living Hospital, there we go. There's plenty in there for our Med Talk podcast listeners. Um, what else is on the health tech stage? Uh, we've got Dr. Lydia Yarlett, who will be talking about growing a digital startup in the healthcare industry. She's from a company called Forward. We will also have um, two 3D printing talks. Uh, one of them is going to be um, discussing disability and how 3D technologies um, can help disrupt disability. We will also have a talk from a company called Glace Prosthetics and they will um, discuss their 3D printed prosthetic arms. Awesome, cool. So again, loads to look out for. Finally, introducing stage. Introducing stage uh, for the first time uh, this year. Uh, has been designed for exhibiting companies um, to introduce themselves to the visitors and to talk about, they will be talking about um, the new products and developments in the medtech industry. So it's one of those things when you go to a trade show, sometimes there's somebody you really want to go and see on a particular stand, but every time you walk past, they're really, really busy and you don't want to interrupt because you can see that they're in the middle of things. Well, the introducing stage is your opportunity to um, get in front of those people one-to-one -one and see what kind of technology they've got available on their stand and all the speakers I guess will be around after the sessions as well to liaise with people and chat more in depth I guess. That's right yes. Awesome well Magda we hope to have you back on the podcast soon thank you very much. Thanks very much Dave. Okay guys, so that's the Topo review. Ian, any more on that? 
Um, it was interesting to actually see the top ten, as they put it, within the, within the review of technological advances that will impact healthcare and the magnitude of disruption it will have between 2020 and 2040. Also, they project. No doubt, they'll have to revisit this at some stage mm -hmm. because of the way technology just moves on so quickly. So you've got a list there, um, Ian, of the technologies that are expected to sort of have an impact. Uh, what are some of the big ones? Well, it's interesting. The, the top three, I, I think, the public are, are pretty well aware of. Mm -hmm. Telemedicine, smartphone apps, and sensors and wearables for diagnostics and remote monitoring. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think smartphones and wearables for di diagnostics and remote monitoring are definitely sort of in the public Stratosphere. What do you think about telemedicine, um, Dave? I know that's, that's, that's quite an old technology, really. Telemedicine's really old technology. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that we're still talking about it at these kind of events in terms of it being a disruptive thing is probably a bit of a nonsense, to be honest. Because, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's been... Because it's been around for a while, you'd think it would have had more of an impact already. Yeah, I mean, perhaps we're reapplying... We're applying old terminology to a new phenomenon mm -hmm. to some extent because um, I suppose telemedicine is something that's going to be a lot more accessible in yeah. the next few years than it has been in the past and a lot cheaper to implement so um, potentially that's why we're still hearing lots about it. Right. Or it could be the basis of this report as a whole is that existing technology just needs to be used better. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, at the start you did say that that was... Um, one of Hancock's major points. It certainly felt that way, yes. Yeah, and I realised it was a little bit on genomics as well. I know Hancock was um, trying to push that a little bit. Um, the NHS is already sort of a world leader um, with mapping the gen genome, and it's uh, I think it's trying to reach uh, one million genomes mapped by in the next five years. Is that a Matt Hancock pledge? Uh, yes, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Dr Topol himself was actually quite... Um, he, he spoke highly of... Uh, breakthrough, so to speak, that has been made in genomics in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, it was interesting to hear uh, in one of the sessions, uh, Professor Matt McCarthy, who was at, um, on the Impact in the Workforce Genomics Board, he, he actually said, I think there was a quote that I, I tweeted out saying, in 10 years' time, we'll be wondering how we did how we did genomics like this, or, right. or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, the cost of uh, mapping the genome has been reduced drastically over the of sort of the last the last decade um, or so, so it's became quite a prominent technology within healthcare. But at the moment, I believe it's sort of only used to diagnose rare diseases. Um, but eventually, it could sort of um, obviously provide a genetic profile for certain maybe segments of a population which are more likely to develop cardiovascular diseases or be more affected by you know chronic conditions. Um, so definitely something of interest for the future. Um, yeah, I think the community. I think the community sort of feels that could be the holy grail for a lot of things. Yeah. But it's it's there's so much work to do. But as you say, the pace of the progress is getting faster and faster now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's crazy, and obviously, it, right now for those patients with them, those rare diseases which have been sort of difficult or almost impossible to diagnose. I've, I've you know I've heard a number of stories where because of how the genomes mapped through the NHS have managed to find out what it is and uh, subsequently treat it or manage it in, in, mm. in, a, in a certain way. So it's, you know, it's definitely not, it's not not helping anybody at the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get you. Yeah. Um, so, but on that digitised workforce um, angle, 
what was um what 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 did Dan Topple sort of um state about that? That's a good question, actually. Um, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> is it? What what did he say? <laughs> <laughs> a lot, it would seem. Oh, this is good, isn't it? <laughs> I was actually I was actually thinking of another point before you actually. Oh, sorry, that I am. Um, yeah, sorry, because, now because in in this top ten, mm-hmm. it's it's funny that everything that's categorised into AI and robotics, uh, speech recognition, automated image interpretation, uh, predictive analytics, mm-hmm. these are all things that can uh, save clinicians time. Right. Well, yeah, yeah I suppose that's a of the digitised workforce as well. Because if you look at speech recognition. It can, uh, there's a lot of examples of it being used across the NHS just to sort of um, help clinicians and doctors um, write up notes faster, for instance. Correct. Um, so yeah, what else was in there apart from speech recognition, did you say? Um, automated image interpretation. Okay. Um, interventional and rehabilitative robotics. I think this is, relates to, we've. I think we've all seen uh, AI and AI robotics in terms of rehabilitation environment. I know very mm-hmm. early on during my time here, I went to uh, the University of Chester to um, to um, try out a rehabilit a re- uh, sorry a rehabilitative. I'm gonna have to say that. Again, was there the I? virtual reality goggles? Go- yes, go- go- yes. <laughs> I have virtual reality goggles on. And was uh, this was rehabilitation techniques for people recovering from strokes? Just oh okay. Just so they can get the brain working, and if they can't. You know, if they can't do the physical side of it, well. yeah. So it um, you okay, Ready? Right. Sorry, why? <laughs> you did something with your hand. I had a cramp. cramp. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> Everyone, sorry. Dave, Dave's got a cramp. But you, you, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I've got a cramp in my. I was just, I was just fascinated listening to what Ian was saying, and uh, <laughs> my hand uh, unfortunately wasn't as fascinated and decided to cramp up. Right. Well, there's technology for that. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, University yeah. of Chester's actually got some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, I was thinking, I I know who you went to see because Reese on his Reese and I during Reese's first week with Rapid News, um, we actually bumped into this guy on the train, and he's a really interesting guy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's really interesting. Yeah. Professor Nigel Johns, I think his name was. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's doing some pioneering work right here on our doorstep in Chester. So um, I'm sure. Um, if you Google his name and University of Chester, you'll find out lots about his work. You'll also be able to read Ian's um, interview with him on digitalhealthage.com. And MedTech Innovation News. And MedTech Innovation News. Cool. Another little pitch. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess on that digitisation angle, we, um, we spoke to Lisa Keane from... Walters Kluwer, who are a um, clinical software provider for the NHS and other healthcare systems, um, and they provide sort of a, a, a platform to help clinicians diagnose uh, conditions quicker. And, and anyway, this is what she had to say on the digital angle within the NHS. It's interesting that there's that shift or that need to move to more digitised workforce, because we're, like you say, we're used to every day just having a phone in our mm-hmm. hand. It's just part of our day-to-day living. Yeah. Maybe not so much. In, oh, there's a big opportunity in, in the NHS to do that, I think, you know, as well as developing these skills, specific skills around mm-hmm. AI and analytics, but actually having that way of working and way of living in your day-to-day work is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess then what Lisa's seeing is that 
the workforce needs to be adapted to digital technologies in a way where it's expected and it's sort of natural to be using these technologies on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And do you think current work- workforce conditions, you know, um, are sort of able to adapt to that at the moment within, within the NHS? Was there anything on that uh, infrastructure side um, in, in the in the report, Ian? Um, well, uh... Dr. Tober briefly mentioned that it, it takes more than infrastructure to make this right. I mean, there was a lot of emphasis on education. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the biggest points of the fact that you can't just chuck technology at the NHS and expect it to work. There needs to be sort of a widespread culture change um, in, 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 some, in some circumstances. Exactly, and with the help of academia, you can do it bottom-up as well. Right. Cool. Well, guys, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there because we're out of time, but... We will be back very soon for the next episode of MedTalk Podcast. We shall. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.